Please listen carefully. Welcome to The Week That Was at Global Voices, the podcast where we bring you the most important and compelling stories you haven't heard from the Global Voices newsroom. I'm your co-host, Lauren, news editor at Global Voices. I live in Bilbao, Spain. I'm your co-host, Sahar, the managing editor at Global Voices. I live right outside of San Francisco. If this is your first time listening in and you're wondering, what is Global Voices? Wait till the end and we'll explain how we cover 167 countries in 35 languages through an impressive network of 1,400 mostly volunteer writers. The Week That Was podcast takes a look at some of the stories that we've published recently on Global Voices. This week, we'll take you to Cambodia, Syria, Tajikistan, the Gambia, and Colombia. On that last one, we'll speak to GV Latin America editor Laura Vidal about why residents of Medellin renamed their city on social media. Here's a sneak peek. People complaining about the super high levels of pollution and they changed the name of the city, which is Medellin, to Medellin, which is this really black with all the smoke that come with the cars. When people found out that the pollution had got as high as it got, other people were getting sick. The numbers of people getting sick from respiratory diseases went up. But before we talk about Colombia, let's head to Cambodia through a story brought to us by our Southeast Asia editor, Mong Palatino. The Cambodian government has stopped the public screening of the documentary I Am Chatwati. Chatwati was an environmentalist killed in 2012 by a soldier guarding a logging plantation. Before his death, Chatwati was leading a network resisting the deforestation of Prelang, which is one of the largest remaining evergreen reserves in Southeast Asia. It is home to about 200,000 people, mostly the indigenous Ku. The Cambodian government granted massive land concessions in Prelang to four investors in 2000. A government probe revealed that the shooting was an accident, but human rights groups believe the killing was intended to silence deforestation protests. Back to the present, the Ministry of Culture and Fine Arts said the screening of the film, I Am Chutwani, does not have a permit from authorities. With the public ban in place, private screenings were held across the country. Kalyani Mam attended a private screening of the film and posted this on Facebook. Just as no government can ban the right to honor and respect the land, no government can prevent us from gathering and expressing our love for this land through the screening of a film. Chet Wadi lit a candle in our hearts, which will continue to burn as long as we continue to express our love for the land. Sahar, I hear there might be some good news hiding in this story. Yep. The good news is that environmentalists working on the front lines have a new ally. The Not One More Network was founded in honor of Chatwati. On their website, notonemore.org, that's not one, the number more.org, they explain, we aim to support environmentalists at risk. We defy threats and intimidation to protect nature. Protecting our environment is the most important job anyone could take on. It shouldn't be one of the most dangerous. We want all who stand up to defend nature to be safe, and to be free. Want to read more about the stories we mentioned in this podcast? You'll find them and more on our website, globalvoices.org, or on Twitter, at Global Voices, and on Facebook, Global Voices Online. Now, on to Tajikistan, to a story brought to us by a Global Voices author who writes under the pseudonym Echo of Truth. Tajikistan is an ex-Soviet state in Central Asia, and it's in the middle of a pretty serious economic crisis. The lack of jobs has led some desperate women to turn to prostitution, 
The Global Fund for the Fight Against HIV, AIDS, Tuberculosis, and Malaria reported last year that a total of 14,000 women are engaged in prostitution in Tajikistan. The country's Ministry of Health and Social Protection called the statistic baseless. But the government isn't totally burying its head in the sand about the growth in sex work. In response, it has doubled the minimum fine for those engaging in it, and it is also offering morality lessons to prostitutes. Yep, you heard that right. Morality lessons for prostitutes. According to local officials, about 30 women arrested during police raids on discos and restaurants would be some of the first students at the morality lessons. Each lesson takes more than an hour and includes local deputies, doctors, women activists, and employees of public organizations. There's talk about the ethics of behavior in society, moral principles, and how women can live a normal life and give birth to healthy children free from various sexually transmitted diseases. A 35-year-old sex worker called Gulmira told Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty, that the lessons aren't helping. She said, They should better conduct lessons for men about how it is bad to divorce their wives via the Islamic divorce law, talaq. When a man does not pay child support after divorce and does not help his ex-wife and children financially, what should the woman do? Prostitution is the only way. I became a prostitute because of lack of work. If I could find a good job, I would not have to deal with this. Prostitution isn't new to Tajikistan, and neither is child prostitution, unfortunately. Back in 2011, the Tajik Ministry of Internal Affairs shocked many citizens when it said that 8 out of 10 criminal cases in 2010, which were related to prostitution, were in the child prostitution category. Increasing fines and shaming women won't change the fact that they are facing economic circumstances beyond their control. But for the moment, at least, Tajik authorities seem content to do just that. Are you enjoying this podcast? Be sure to find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, and Stitcher. Subscribe, give us an upvote, or drop us a comment. And if we don't appear on your favorite podcast app, let us know. Next, on to the Syrian city of Aleppo, in a story brought to us by Middle East and North Africa editor Amira Al-Husseini and contributor Lara Al-Malakay. Aleppo was famous as a trading and business city, home to the country's wealthiest merchants. It was an industrial hub for Syria, hosting some of the biggest and most advanced pharmaceutical and textile factories. The city is now in ruins. The regime of President Bashar al-Assad has resumed shelling in rebel-held areas during the last two weeks. Up to 350,000 people live where forces are dropping bombs. Hundreds of civilians have been killed. On social media, a campaign is underway, calling on supporters around the world to change their profiles to red. It's meant to show support for ending these massacres being committed against civilians. Some of the bombings have targeted medical services. On May 2nd, a photojournalist named Hadi al-Abdallah tweeted a photo of an ambulance, the windshield blown out, and the roof and hood covered in rubble. He wrote that the vehicle and its crew had been on their way to treat people who were injured. And a few days earlier, Al-Quds Hospital was bombed, killing the last pediatrician in rebel-held Aleppo, as well as dozens of other people. The international community is once again being criticized for lack of action. This revived campaign on Aleppo seems to be spelling the end of a brief ceasefire agreed upon between Russia and the U.S. A photo of graffiti shared on social media sums up the frustration. It is now time for daily airstrikes on Aleppo City. Enjoy your movie. Five years have passed since the civil war in Syria between Assad's forces and those who want him gone began. Hundreds of thousands of people have been killed and millions are displaced, 
seeking refuge within the country or outside of it. The Aleppo is Burning campaign wants the world to show solidarity with the innocents whose lives are being destroyed, just like social media users did after the attacks in Brussels and Paris. So if you happen to notice a Facebook friend or Twitter follower with a red profile photo, you'll now know the important reason behind the change. Hear that? That's the sound of protesters in the Gambia demanding the release of Abrima Solo Sandeg, the youth head of the main opposition party, dead or alive. He and more than a dozen other party supporters who had been protesting peacefully for electoral reforms were rounded up by security forces last month. 48 hours after those arrests, news broke that Sandeg and two other party members had died in police custody. This triggered an unprecedented uprising in the tiny West African nation. The protests haven't garnered much attention in the international media, thanks in part to the repression that the country's erratic leader, Yahya Jomei, unleashed on participants. But our contributor Demba Kanda was on the story. News of Sandeg's death led to new demonstrations, this time with the opposition party leader, Asan U Darbao, at the front. He demanded the release of the remaining electoral reform protesters, dead or alive. After barely marching for 300 feet, Darbao and at least two dozen supporters were arrested by police. Some protesters were later released, but Darbao and 19 others have bounced around from court hearing to court hearing awaiting bail. Each time their families, fellow party supporters and sympathizers have turned out in large numbers to chant slogans of solidarity, demanding their release. Religion has played a role in the protests. This is perhaps not surprising. More than 90% of the Gambia's population is Muslim, and there are close ties between politicians and religious leaders there. In December 2015, the country's president, Jameh, even declared himself a Muslim and spiritual healer and proclaimed his country to be an Islamic Republic. A group of women showed up at court waving in the air calabashes, which are a type of gourd, and chanting slogans of freedom from the country's national anthem. Waving calabashes is seen as a form of a curse in local culture and a show of determination during difficult times. Similarly, another group of protesters led by several Muslim imams turned up outside court chanting praises to God. There are fears over the whereabouts of five detained activists who were arrested during the demonstrations who have not appeared before any court. Disappearances without trace is unfortunately not unheard of in the Gambia. Finally, we're off to Colombia, where air pollution recently plagued the city of Medellin. Residents turned to Twitter to air their frustration, and one of the results was a sarcastically creative new name for their home. And of course, it became a hashtag. Global Voices contributor Kati Restrepo reported the story, and Laura Vidal, our Latin America editor, is here to tell us more about it. Welcome, Laura. Thank you for having me. What's this hashtag, and where did it come from? Well, the hashtag comes with people complaining about the super high levels of pollution and they changed the name of the city, which is Medellin, to Medellin, which is this really black, you know, that all the smoke that come with the cars. There were many things going on when people found out that the pollution had got as high as it got. Other people were getting sick. The numbers of people getting sick for respir from respiratory uh, diseases went up really, really bad. 
And at the same time, there are a lot of factors. I mean, there there are meteorological phenomena happening, a phenomenon that is called El Niño. There's also the fact that Medellin is, is placed in a valley, which doesn't really let the, the air flow too freely. And there's also the fact that it became a lot easier to get cars. An idea of development from one side that didn't go very well with the, with the environment. And, and how is the government responding? There were some initiatives like stopping cars for a day and also some other groups that were, that were supported that will advocate for the use of the bike. But at the same time, it's, it's a very complicated problem because there's a lot of people in the city and a lot of people that keep coming to the city as well. I think that one point that is very important is the point of the cars. It became extremely easy, and I think I said that before, but it became extremely easy to buy cars in Medellin. You could get a, a credit for a car in a very easy way. So that made that in, in a period of more or less 10 years, if I'm not wrong, the number of cars in the city became like five times higher. So this is a lot of pollution that, that they didn't apply for. So we have this, this hashtag which combines the name of the city, Medellin, with the word for soot, more or less, right? Mm-hmm. How are people responding to this hashtag? Do they find it a joke? Are people upset? Well, I think it was the center of a lot of discussion. I think there was a tweet that I liked very much, and it was responding to a magazine explaining why they were calling Medellin now Medellin saying that you don't need to change the name of the city. Our identity doesn't have to change because we're going through this problem. We've been through a lot of problems before and we'll solve this one. It doesn't have to be a change of our identity. You don't need to change the name of the city. At the same time, it's, uh, I think it was a hashtag that had a lot of impact because it also reflected the anger of a lot of people that felt not taken care of Precisely because this lack of planning, the fact that you could have so many cars and not think of the future of it, I think it's it's a side of it. There were people, in, yes, very angry, of course, uh, because particularly because there are health problems linked to this, as as it tends to happen with a lot of hashtags. You have a lot of opinions at the same time, but I will say that most of them were quite angry and quite angry at the administration of the city. Do we see this phenomenon taking off in other Latin American cities as well? The phenomenon of pollution or the a phenomenon like the hashtag? Pollution, people wearing masks, which we saw in this post that um, Caddy did. We saw some images of people wearing masks. Are there other cities mm -hmm. where people are resorting to these measures? I think a good example would be uh, Mexico. The capital of Mexico, Mexico City is extremely polluted, also because it's an extremely big city. This is the one that I am pretty sure but at the same time, most of the big cities in the region have a lot of population that was not expected. There's been a lot of migration from more rural areas looking for more opportunities and for jobs, particularly when, for different cases, in the case of Colombia, a lot of the people that left the countryside for the cities were fleeing violence, not only poverty, but also violence. And in cases like Venezuela, for example, a lot of people were just looking for new opportunities in the city. 
but at the same time, these cities were not really ready to receive them. And so that's how you see a sort of overpopulation, or at least if it's not an overpopulation, you can very clearly see that there, it's a city that wasn't ready for this big number of people. And all that adds up to the inequalities that you can see along the region and in major urban areas. So when you add this to, uh, to the idea of development and the idea of a level of life, that includes a lot of, of um, resources. One of the, these resources tend to be uh, transportation and cars that also contribute to increase in pollution. So I guess that the second, the second big example that I can think of is Mexico City, definitely. Not, neither Mexico nor Medellin are the only ones suffering from this problem. Caracas is a heavily polluted city as well. How do things stand now in Medellin? Have, has the pollution gone down at all? Yeah, it has. I mean, the emergency has gone down, but that doesn't mean that the pollution has gone away. I think that this was the moment for people in Medellin to get sensitive about it and to start demanding changes from the administration as well. But the problem of the pollution continues. Uh, the cars didn't go anywhere. Uh, there are different initiatives here and there, but I really think that um, unless there's a fundamental change, we might see uh, a crisis like this coming back in some time. So Medellin is not going anywhere? I hope it does. I hope it does. I mean, this, uh, it's, it's, Medellin has gone through so many things. But at the same time, there's been so many initiatives, not only by the government, but also by the people. These initiatives haven't been perfect and they haven't changed the city in a fundamental way, but they have improved many things. I think it would be very unfair to change the name of a city that has achieved so much for this crisis. Although I do understand those who really want to push so people don't forget that this is an ongoing problem and if things don't change, yeah, probably Medellin will come back. Thanks, Laura. Thanks for having me. So, we've been talking about all these stories and contributors from all over the world. You might be thinking that Global Voices is just some sort of front-of-the-mill news outlet, right? Not quite. We are a worldwide, multilingual network of passionate people who tell stories about our communities that aren't being told, or being told poorly, or even misleadingly, in mainstream media. We have been building these bridges of understanding through our digital reporting since 2005. And that's a wrap. This is Sahar. And Lauren. Many, many thanks to all our authors, translators, and editors who helped make this episode possible. In this episode, we featured Creative Commons licensed music from the Free Music Archive, including Please Listen Carefully by Jazzer, Dramatic Theme by the PQ Jazz Collective, All the Best Fakers by Nick Jaina, You Know Who You Are by Alan Singley, Lean Street by Ketza, Breathe in the Static by Kirk Pearson, and Bit. Thanks for tuning in to The Week That Was at Global Voices. You'll hear our voices again in two weeks.